Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This is one of my favorite guests uh, because it's always intriguing to find out what's going on. And the person we have with us is one of those people who tries to find out what's going on. And his name is Tom Jensen, and he's the director of public policy polling, a, a, poly, a polling company that does research not only here in the state of North Carolina, but all across the country and has been doing so for some time and has gained quite a reputation for being uh, on top of things and having very accurate polls. So, Tom, welcome back to the program. Delighted to have you back with us. Always great to be with you. Well, you know, I guess we are already now into the uh, political season and uh, for the, (laughs) believe it or not, 2024 election. Uh, we have uh, announced candidates for uh, the governor's race in North Carolina. And, of course, we've got some activity in the Republican Party as far as the presidential primary on that side nationally. So let's, uh, I guess, start off with that, uh, uh, Tom, because uh, uh, that's very, always very much in the news. Uh, and I guess we start with the Republicans. And uh, what are you and your research, what are you seeing and hearing and whether you think of the trends regarding former president uh, donald trump well i really think one of the biggest questions with the republican nomination contest is how many people are going to end up running because donald trump certainly does have a strong base of support but it's not such a strong base of support that it just sort of puts the republican nomination contest to an end there's about 35 40 percent of republicans who will support uh, Donald Trump, no matter what. So anytime that you do a poll that has Donald Trump and like seven or eight other Republicans in it, Donald Trump always has a pretty substantial advantage because he does have that group of about a third uh, of the Republicans who are very much committed to him. There's been a lot of polling that shows that when you then ask, well, if you had to choose just between Donald Trump and say, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida, Sometimes DeSantis leads those polls one-on-one against Trump. Sometimes Trump's ahead in them. They, they've been kind of a, a little bit all over the place. But it sort of shows that uh, the more candidates who run, the better Trump's chances are. Uh, if opposition to Trump ends up sort of uh, coalescing around just one other person, uh, there's a pretty good chance that Trump could be taken down. Uh, of course, uh, the former governor of uh, South Carolina has either announce or we are hearing that she is planning to announce. What what do you think her chances are? Uh, Probably not terribly high. I've seen a lot of speculation that what she's doing is really kind of just trying to run for lieutenant, I mean, not lieutenant governor, for vice president. uh, And, you know, hopes that coming off of uh, a presidential campaign, where even if she doesn't have a great chance of winning the nomination, she at least acquits herself well. Uh, that might put her in a position to get chosen by whoever does end up as the Republican nominee to run with them. Uh, but there was a national poll this week from uh, Politico that found that only 3% of Republicans actually support her uh, for the nomination at this point. Of course, one thing that's worth remembering once you get beyond sort of Trump and DeSantis and Mike Pence is that most of the other Republicans who might think about running for president uh, in, in 2024 don't have that great of a national profile yet. And certainly things could change as they go along. Uh, You go back 16 years in time. I don't know that Barack Obama's poll numbers were very high in February of 2007, uh, a year out from the first round of voting. So 
I don't mean to completely dismiss somebody like Nikki Haley, who uh, could end up being possibly very appealing to Republican voters as she becomes better known. Uh, but right now, she's uh, not got very much support. Well, I had that uh, sort of same inclination to think that perhaps she was arranging herself as a vice presidential candidate because, quite frankly, she would probably fit that role about as good as anybody you can imagine. Uh, she would add uh, the fact that she's a woman and also uh, uh, has some experience on the, the global level. Um, she would probably make a very attractive vice presidential candidate for almost any candidate. Yeah, and I think that President Biden himself is sort of an example of where that path can lead to. He ran for president in 2008, really did not garner very much support in his presidential bid, but he established enough of a rapport with President Obama on the campaign trail over the course of that uh, presidential race that he ended up making it onto the ticket, even though he never did garner very much support uh, for president himself that time around. And obviously, 12 years later, after that very unsuccessful run in the primary, he ended up getting elected president. So you can see, especially for somebody like Nikki Haley, who's pretty young, uh, the extent to which this can really be a long game. Let me ask you this. In your polling on uh, President Trump, uh, I'm sort of intrigued by the fact that uh, he's had an incredible amount of, of bad publicity recently, but that doesn't seem to be affecting that hardcore 35%. It just seems like that... Uh, they ignore the anything that uh, comes down to the fact that's negative. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is that a, a good assessment of the situation with his hardcore supporters? Yeah, uh, and that's really been the case for seven, eight years now since he sort of really landed on the national political scene anyway. He's obviously been on the scene more broadly for about 40 years now. Uh, and, you know, I've been asked numerous times over this uh, last decade or so, you know, what would it take for Trump's supporters to abandon him? And uh, there's been some pretty, pretty serious stuff that could have caused his supporters to abandon him over the course of the last decade. And it never has happened yet. So uh, I think the biggest problem for him uh, is if he ceases to sort of have this veneer of being a winner. One thing that I'm going to be interested to see uh, over the course of the next year here is whether Republicans who don't like Donald Trump uh, can successfully push a narrative that he was really responsible for the fact that Republicans did a lot more poorly in last year's midterm elections than they should have. There's lots of research that shows when you sort of compare how Republicans who didn't embrace, embrace Trump did in 2022 to how Republicans who were very closely associated with Trump did in 2022, the Trump Republicans were the ones who really did quite poorly and caused it to be such a disappointing year for the GOP overall. And I think that if if the other Republicans who don't like Trump can convey that to his supporters and he no longer can you know, convince them that he's such a winner and that everything he touches turns to gold, that's the sort of thing that might uh, give him some trouble with those folks. But I'm a little skeptical that that is an argument that uh, is going to be able to be able successfully made against him, even though intellectually it's definitely true. Globally, we uh, I guess we're talking about the uh, nationwide numbers on Trump. What about North Carolina? Is he more or less popular in North Carolina than he is in most states? It's really a pretty similar picture here to the rest of the country. Uh, I think that you'd see the same sort of trends here, which is that, again, 
if a lot of people run, Trump's going to be at the top of the heap. If not that many people run and it becomes more of a choice between Trump and sort of a specific alternative, things could get a lot more uh, interesting. And what's really sort of fascinating about this whole dynamic is it's almost exactly what the dynamic in 2016 was. In the early primaries and caucuses in 2016, it's not like Donald Trump was consistently getting you know, 50, 55 percent of the vote or anything like that. But you had Marco Rubio running and Ted Cruz running and John Kasich running and so many different serious candidates in the race uh, in 2016 that that anti-Trump vote got split all over the place and was letting Trump win places with 35 percent of the vote, 40 percent of the vote, those sorts of numbers. Uh, and in some ways, it seems like Republicans could be headed to a repeat of that, at least based on where we are uh, right now, uh, because they're do seem to be so many Republicans who want to run for president. Uh, and there hasn't been a lot of evidence that they, they can sort of just get together and say, OK, this is who's going to take on Trump so that we can make sure that we actually get rid of this guy. In North Carolina, of course, we have registered unaffiliates. We call them independents, but they're re- legally called registered unaffiliates. Uh, and they can choose to vote in either primary. They can't vote in both, but they can vote in one. Would there be a negative group of, uh, in other words, would Trump get some negative votes? In other words, people who are registered on affiliates that might lean Democratic, but they're so against Trump that they would vote in the Republican primary uh, so they could vote against him? Yeah, one thing that's going to be really interesting to watch on the North Carolina front over the next year uh, is whether Democrats end up having competitive primaries for president and governor next year. Obviously, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but Josh Stein is in in the governor's race. It's not clear if more Democrats will run or not. Uh, It's not clear if Joe Biden is actually going to end up facing a serious primary challenge or not. If neither of those primaries end up being competitive, you very well could end up in a situation where almost all of the unaffiliated vote uh, in the Republican primary next year. And I do think that uh, that could be something that at least on the margins hurts Trump by like four or five points because unaffiliated who usually vote in the Republican primary aren't necessarily anti-Trump. A lot of those unaffiliated who usually vote in the Republican primary may be uh, even people who just aren't registered Republican because they think the party's not conservative enough uh, and they're sort of discontent because of that. Uh, but definitely the unaffiliated who usually vote in the Democratic primary would be very anti-Trump. Uh, and I definitely think that if there was no action on the Democratic side, uh, there would be a good incentive for those sort of uh, blue-leaning unaffiliated voters to vote in the Republican primary and vote for a more moderate alternative, unless the Democratic infrastructure encouraged those kinds of people to go vote for Trump because he'd be easier to beat in the general election. That's actually something that happened in a lot of primary contests around the country for things like U.S. Senate and governor in 2022, is that Democrats were actively trying to get extreme Republican candidates nominated because it improved their chances of winning those races in the general election. So it'll be interesting to see which of those paths we go down. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, North Carolina is sort of an oddball situation, but I guess Georgia is really a strange situation because of... uh, what's been happening down there in the presidential elections. Yeah, and something that's interesting in Georgia is they don't have any party uh, affiliation at all, no party registration at all. So everybody on a case-by-case basis can vote in any primary that they want. 
Uh, so that's something that makes Georgia sort of an interesting state. And uh, Georgia in general is just so interesting, especially when you compare it to North Carolina. In 2008, Georgia was five points to the right of North Carolina. Uh, we narrowly voted for Barack Obama for president. Georgia voted for John McCain by five points. Uh, now we are a couple points. Uh, now we are a couple points to the right of Georgia. Uh, Joe Biden narrowly won the state in 2020, while uh, Trump was actually uh, uh, winning North Carolina by a couple points. So uh, there's been a lot of speculation about whether as North Carolina becomes more urban, as North Carolina becomes more diverse, uh, if North Carolina. Uh, might become a state where Democrats can win more often. Uh, and it's interesting that Georgia has sort of seen those trends accelerate at a much faster pace than North Carolina has uh, to the point where it has moved uh, five or six points to the left over the last 15 years, while North Carolina has sort of stayed exactly in place. So it's going to be interesting to see if anything changes for us on that front moving forward. Well, it's interesting how independent and unaffili unaffiliated voter trends are uh, uh, causing uh, unique situations, and I guess it probably causes all sorts of problems for you in pop and uh, polling. Uh, Tom Jensen is our guest. He's the director of public policy polling. We'll be back, and we're going to turn our attention to the state of North Carolina as the races are beginning to take shape there as well. And we'll do that right after these messages. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world your family and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is how we do every day. We be grinding and if you want to come and text us. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. I don't know how many times Tom has been on the program, and we always uh, find uh, the, the work that he's doing to be so interesting. And I guess uh, uh, every other year, you sort of take a year off uh, to regroup. But during that period of time, you, you sort of uh, poll, I guess, more on issues. Is that correct? What, what, what are you polling on these days instead of candidates? Uh, it's really a mix of stuff. Um, we There are a fair number of races across the country in 2023. Uh, you know, things like the entire uh, city councils in New York City and Chicago have their uh, elections in off years. And both of those cities have 50 people on the city council. So that ends up 
uh, being a big source of business to us. Uh, but you're right that we also, for instance, in uh, the last few weeks did a, uh, a big poll that hasn't been released yet about education issues in North Carolina. Uh, we did a big poll about um, people's feelings about personal finance in Vermont. Uh, we've done some polling about what people think should happen with George Santos, the the new dubious congressman from New York. So uh, it's really a pretty wide variety of stuff that ends up uh, coming into us. Can you comment on any of those that you just mentioned, or including the ones that have not been released yet? Uh, I can definitely talk about the the George Santos poll. Obviously, he's been the biggest newsmaker in the new Congress with this thin Republican majority and. Uh, basically made up most of his biography. Uh, and his situation is sort of interesting um, because we asked people in his district if he should resign and 60% said yes, 26% said no. Uh, but one thing I thought was particularly notable there was that among his own voters, uh, only 34% said he should resign, 47% said he should not resign. And I think what that sort of shows is the way that the Trump phenomenon has extended to other Republicans. Uh, I think in another time, you would have seen everybody saying that he should resign, even people who had voted for him, even uh, his own Republican base would be saying he should resign, given the amount of uh, line that has come out from him. Uh, but I think what the fact that his voters don't want him to resign speaks to uh, is that post-Trump, there's this you know feeling in the uh, Republican Party that you should just keep on fighting and never give in to what the Democrats want and that sort of thing, no matter what goes on. Uh, and then I think it also just speaks to the general increased polarization that, uh, you know, even if Republicans think that Santos's line is really distasteful, uh, that's not as important as sticking it to the Democrats. And for him to stay in Congress, sticks it to the Democrats. So they want him to stay around just to annoy Democrats, even if they happen to agree that he really lied about everything and is dishonorable. And on the issue front, we, uh, you know, we've been hearing now for almost a year and a half that we were going to have a uh, recession. And most experts seem to think it was going to be a kind of a mild recession. As of yet, we haven't really seen any evidence that we are in a recession. And there are even those who are thinking that we might not even have one. The other word that has been out there for some time and is a concern, and everyone sees it when they do their grocery shopping uh, and any other shopping, and that's the I word, the inflation word. How important are those two issues right now, and how are they likely to, uh, I don't know, shape up as issues in the upcoming elections in 2024? Well, uh, certainly the idea of the recession is not having much of an impact on anything at this point, because it is, as you note, still sort of more hypothetical than a, a real thing. And voters <laughs> generally don't plan ahead. So if it's not, you know, something that's an immediate concern, that's usually not high up on the issues. Uh, inflation definitely is a big one. And it actually was a, a big issue that sort of moved things up and down a little bit over the course of uh, 2022, and I think really did have an impact on the election. Uh, and I think you specifically see that through the uh, sphere of gas prices. Uh, there was an absolute low point for Democrats over the course of 2022. Uh, and that was in July when gas started in a lot of cases to be over $5. That's when we saw the worst approval numbers that we saw for Joe Biden all year. He was starting to have approval ratings in the low to mid 30s, really even lower than Donald Trump's approval ratings were at any point. 
uh, and that seemed very much uh, like it was sort of moving up and down with the gas prices. And then a big part of why Democrats didn't do quite as badly in November as they had been expected to do is we saw some improvement in that situation. Uh, people were still unhappy with how much things were costing and still unhappy with how much gas itself was costing. But there had been improvement since July by the time we got to voting in November. Uh, and I think that that really was part of what made it possible uh, for people to, in some cases, vote Democratic, even if they weren't really happy with the direction on that specific issue. Because the inflation and the gas prices weren't quite as bad as they'd been over the summer, that increased the salience of things like abortion or Republicans nominating really extreme unqualified candidates and a lot of key Senate races and that sort of thing. Uh, so I think we could see a similar trend here over the next uh, 21 months as we head into the presidential election next year is, uh, you know, if there continues to be inflation, that's not going to be helpful to Democrats. But the degree of it is going to determine just how much of a hindrance it is to Biden's reelection or not. So pocketbook issues will always be a deciding factor in how uh, the, the politicians really think about this and their work as far as lining up their uh, legislative approaches and their votes with that in mind. Or is it just uh, they just say, well, it's going to be what it's going to be? Well, I think we saw a lot of efforts, especially by the Democratic Congress last year and the Biden administration to pass legislation that would help with stuff like this. But uh, I do think that at the end of the day, a lot of it kind of just is what it is. Um, you know, there was situations where, for instance, gas was over four dollars at points during the Bush administration. And that wasn't really George W. Bush's fault, just like when it was over five dollars last year, it wasn't really Joe Biden's fault in both cases. I think no matter who had been president, about the same outcome would have happened. Uh, but certainly both parties will exploit any advantage they have. So even if they intellectually know that that's not something that can really be uh, pinned on the president, they still do it. Uh, and we certainly have seen that present itself in recent years. Have you done any polling on the student debt uh, relief uh, proposals? And how does the public... Uh, at large feel about that whole situation? It's an interesting situation how the polling on that has sort of moved over time. Uh, when it was initially announced, the student debt relief was quite popular. Uh, and for anything to be quite popular these days requires some crossover support because the country's so evenly divided. So you had all of the Democrats saying that they supported it, and then you had a decent number of Republicans saying they supported it too. More Republicans opposed it than supported it, but you had some Republicans who supported it, and that gave it good numbers overall. But one thing that we saw happen sort of in, especially the first month of September, sort of immediately following the announcement about the student loan debt stuff was that Republican thought leaders and Fox News and those kinds of people made it very clear that they were opposed to it. And that sort of served as a cue uh, for rank and file Republican voters who might have initially said that they thought it sounded like it sounded like a good idea, they ended up deciding that they opposed it too. So the support for it went down in the polling to the point where now it's sort of more is just if you're a Democrat, you like it. And if you're a Republican, you don't like it. Uh, it just sort of falls along the expected partisan lines as opposed to being something that initially did have some crossover support. So 
that again, I think is an example of sort of the political world that we live in these days is that uh, a lot of the times people might sort of have an instinct towards one side of an issue, but then uh, it's almost like, you know, cheering for a team. And if the stars of your team are saying that they think something's bad, then you turn to saying that you think it's bad too, even if your initial thought might've been that it was okay. And that's sort of how we've seen things move on that issue. I guess this uh, is sort of a question that goes without asking, but what is the approval rating of the Supreme Court these days? Uh, it's lower than it's ever been in the history of polling of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think because it's been uh, started to be seen as such a partisan uh, entity. I think that there was certainly a time in American history where people really did think that the Supreme Court was sort of full of integrity and uh, beyond reproach and uh, a true vestige of nonpartisanship and all those sorts of things. Uh, and that's just not the case anymore. If there's a hot button issue, you know, sort of that six of them are going to take the conservative side and three of them are going to take the liberal side. Uh, so it starts to be seen more similarly to Congress or the presidency in terms of uh, the sort of level of respect it has as a body, it, it turns much more to uh, if you agree with the rulings it's making, you like it. And if you don't agree with the rulings it's making, you don't like it. And you can pretty well uh, predict ahead of time how those are all going to come down. Uh, so I think that increased partisanship on the Supreme Court has really sort of hurt the standing in which it's held by the American people. What is the impact of the Hispanic vote? Uh, and let's talk about nationwide because Obviously, there are. Uh, uh, we tend to think of Hispanics as as, uh, as one group. Truly, they come from different regions. Some come from the Caribbean. Some come from Mexico. So, what is the overall impact of the Hispanic vote? Where are they likely to line up nationwide? And then, particularly in North Carolina, where we have somewhere around eleven or twelve percent of our total population now is being Hispanic. So the Hispanic vote has been a big story over the last six or seven years because uh, it used to be heavily Democratic. In the 2012 election and in 2016, to some extent, it went somewhere between two to one and three to one Democratic. It wasn't quite as reliable a Democratic voting bloc as African-American voters, but uh, it was it was very overwhelmingly on the Democratic side. And one of the sort of surprising and interesting things that happened in the 2020 election uh, is that Donald Trump was actually able to significantly increase his support with Hispanic voters to the point where I would say that Hispanic voters nationally are now sort of more in the 60 to 40 range for Democrats, uh, down from being 70, 30-ish uh, a decade ago. And that has particularly had a big impact in a state like Florida that's gone from being sort of a quintessential swing state to now voting Republican in the key races last year by 15 to 20 points. It's because Republicans have uh, really uh, gotten to the point where they're winning a majority of the Hispanic vote in Florida, where it's Cuban, which has tended to be uh, a disproportionately Republican group of Hispanic voters. I think Hispanic voters in North Carolina sort of mirror the country as a whole more closely uh, in terms of being about 60 to 40 for the Democrats. One issue that Democrats in uh, North Carolina have dealt with is that even though uh, Hispanics do represent, as you noted, more than 10 percent of the population in North Carolina, it's still only around two or three percent of the people who actually vote in a given election. 
Uh, so Democrats need to both make sure that they continue to win the Hispanic vote in North Carolina by a pretty decent amount. They also really need to improve the ability to which they've been able to get Hispanic voters engaged to go out and vote and participate in key races. One thing that was a big disappointment for Democrats in the North Carolina uh, races in 2022 uh, was that uh, the Hispanic uh, state house member from Alamance County, Ricky Hurtado, who had knocked off a Republican incumbent in 2020, got narrowly defeated for re-election in 2022. Uh, and he was somebody who was really a rising star in the party, and I think still is a rising star in the party. Uh, but Democrats are definitely disappointed not to have him in Raleigh for this session. That's a, It's interesting that there's 10% of the population and only 2% of the vote. That's, uh, that's sort of an interesting situation. Uh, our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the uh, gubernatorial race in the state of North Carolina and also uh, probably talk a little bit about the congressional situation. And we'll do that right after these messages. You wanted to see me? Yes, please have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Tom Jensen, Director of Public Policy Polling. And uh, we asked Tom to be with us because uh, already the 2024 election is underway. We have announced uh, a number of candidates, uh, uh, both the federal level and the state level, uh, a, a number yet, yet to come. And but we just thought well, it would be a good time to get Tom to sort of lay the lay, of, to give us the lay of the land. And uh, of course, uh, the uh, I guess the heir apparent, the person that almost everyone thought was going to run for governor on the Democratic side has announced, and that's the Attorney General, Josh Stein. Uh, how, have you done any polling on him and his acceptance uh, as far as uh, offering himself as a candidate for governor? Well, the interesting thing about Josh Stein, and this was true for Roy Cooper, too, is that he really doesn't have that high name recognition right now, uh, even though he's been attorney general for a couple terms. Anytime we ask people on a poll if they have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of him, more than half of voters don't have an opinion about him one way or the other. 
Uh, and that's not an indictment of him by any means. Roy Cooper had been attorney general for 16 years. And when he first uh, ran for governor, uh, he had less than 50 percent name recognition starting out. So uh, I know that for all of us who follow politics closely, Josh Stein is definitely like a household name and somebody who we're very familiar with. But he's really kind of going to be uh, introducing himself to voters across the state for the first time, for the most part, uh, here over the next couple of years. So. Uh, I don't want to say he's a, a completely blank slate, but really, uh, at this point, I don't think North Carolinians have strong feelings about him one way or the other. Uh, and he'll have a chance to sort of uh, try to introduce himself on his terms. And of course, Republicans will try to uh, form a negative opinion of him in voters' eyes before he gets the chance to do that for himself. So I think a big part of him getting into the race so early uh, in January of 2023, heading into the November 2024 election is that he has that work to do to sort of familiarize himself to voters. Paul, he has not announced yet. Uh, there is a widespread speculation that the, the lieutenant governor on the Republican side will announce for uh, his decision to run. And also there's been some speculation recently about uh, the North Carolina treasurer, Dale Falwell, being a candidate. Have you done research there? Well, we have done research. And what's really interesting about the Republican uh, polling for governor right now is it just makes it very clear the extent to which uh, this sort of extremism has taken over. We uh, polled whether people would want, you know, uh, Mark Robinson, who's obviously uh, quite a, a firebrand, or if they would want uh, State Treasurer Dale Falwell, who's, I think, been a solid sort of uh, technocrat in the job. And we also threw into the mix uh, Senator Tom Tillis, who obviously has has represented North Carolina in the Senate for quite a while at this point. Uh, and it was not even close when we polled on that. Uh, Mark Robinson had over 50 percent of the vote. And neither of those other guys, despite all of their time in statewide office, uh, really had very much support at all. Uh, it was 20% support for Tom Tillis in that instance and 4% support for Dale Falwell uh, with Mark Robinson at 54%. Uh, so I think that pretty clearly shows that it's Robinson's uh, nomination there for the taking. And I think it pretty clearly shows uh, how little of an appetite there is for a more moderate Republican or sort of a more competent Republican uh, going out there and, and saying really wild stuff uh, obviously has been much more of a path to popularity for Robinson with the party base and what I would argue is the much more substantive work that Falwell and Tillis have done in their respective jobs. We also have a very interesting situation about the congressional districts in North Carolina. There is the potential of redistricting. Uh, what is your uh, timetable as far as when you think you will know what that situation is going to be and how might that end up? Well, I don't know how quickly Republicans will move to redraw the lines that were used last year, but I think it's safe to say that they will be redrawn. Uh, and what's going to be interesting to see is exactly how aggressive Republicans uh, try to be uh, in creating more districts for themselves. Right now, we're at a seven to seven uh, congressional delegation for North Carolina. Uh, for much of the last decade, we had a 10 to three delegation because Republicans uh, basically drew all the Democrats into three districts. Uh, and there are uh, easy paths, I would say, to at least get Republicans to a 10 to 4 map uh, right now. 
certainly the district in the triangle that was the closest race last year between uh, Democrat Wiley Nickel, who was elected mostly because Republicans ran a very poor candidate uh, in Bo Hines. It wouldn't take very much work at all to turn that into a uh, Republican district, just move a few things around here and there. Uh, in the northeastern corner of the state, you had a situation where uh, the Democrat Don Davis was a, a state senator who I think was generally viewed as a very strong candidate. Uh, the Republican candidate was a very weak candidate, Sandy Smith, who didn't have much in the way of qualification and was very extreme. Despite that disparity, it ended up being a pretty close race uh, in that northeastern district. So I think you could see a situation there as well where if Republicans tweaked the district a little bit and ran a better candidate than they did last time around, uh, you could end up seeing eastern North Carolina completely represented by uh, Republicans, which would be quite a departure from the fact that we've had uh, an African-American Democrat representing that part of the state since the early 90s. First, it was Eva Clayton, and then it was briefly Frank Balance, and then G.K. Butterfield for a long time, and now Don Davis, newly elected. Uh, it wouldn't take a lot to turn that into a Republican district. And then I think the third one that Republicans could uh, pretty easily flip around is Jeff Jackson's district that uh, covers parts of Mecklenburg County and then, then out west to Gaston County. It would be very easy uh, to move more of the Democratic parts of that district in Mecklenburg County into uh, Alma Adams's district that sort of is center Charlotte and then add more Republican suburban areas to the rest of that district to the point where that would become a strong Republican district. Uh, around this time, a year and a half ago, Speaker Tim Moore really wanted to go uh, to Congress and uh, you could easily sort of combine Gaston County with Cleveland County that he represents uh, and sort of create a Republican district for him now that uh, Republicans likely are going to have another chance at doing this. So I think at, at the least, Republicans are in a position to probably turn this seven to seven map uh, into a map that gives them a 10 to four advantage. Uh, and then it would be a little bit more of a stretch, but they could try to go after either uh, Kathy Manning uh, in the triad or Deborah Ross's Wake County District to even try to get an 11th seat. I think that would be a little bit greedy. But uh, if I was a Republican, I'd be pretty happy if uh, North Carolina basically is a 51 to 49 Republican state and I ended up with 10 out of 14 congressional seats. Uh, the 7 to 7 delegation that we have right now actually is a very fair representation of the state, uh, but I don't think that Republicans are going to let that stand. Well, it is interesting, and of course, uh, there's some uh, Supreme Court cases that might also come into play in, in the redistricting matter. Do you think that will have any effect in the redistricting that the uh, General Assembly does? Well, uh, a, a couple different Supreme Courts are a big deal here. Uh, one reason that Republicans are in a position to draw these new maps so much more favorably for themselves is that they took control of the state Supreme Court uh, in the elections last November, the state Supreme Court had sort of held, uh, had reined in Republicans a little bit on exactly how aggressive they could be uh, with their gerrymandering. So that's not a problem anymore. Uh, we had several discussions last year, you and I, about how probably every single statewide judicial race would have the exact same outcome because the candidates just don't really matter in those races. They just kind of match the partisanship of the state. That is very much what we ended up seeing happen. Basically, every statewide judicial race, Republicans won by about three to five points. So that's one key. 
Uh, and then we are likely to see some decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court about redistricting perhaps come down this year. My guess, based on how the Supreme Court has dealt with redistricting issues so far, is that they're going to give states very wide leeway to just do whatever they want. Uh, So I think that that would probably empower uh, Republicans in the General Assembly to be pretty aggressive about what they do in terms of redrawing these lines to win themselves more seats. I'm correct in saying that uh, on the... uh state level, you have to live in the district that you serve, but the congressional candidates do not have to live in their district. Is that correct still? I believe so, yeah. When do you think, if, if it were to get to be in a 10-4 or, or, or 11-3 situation, when do you think that might be a factor uh, for someone who has statewide appeal? Uh, let's just say a Tom Tillis decides to come back to North Carolina and decides to run for for a house seat, and uh, he doesn't live in the, the district, but he has uh, uh, great name recognition. I'm just using that as an example. I have no idea that he's even thinking about that. But uh, do you think that will become a factor at some point in time as uh, uh, as the Republicans may run out of candidates in, within their own district? Well, I think one thing that we've definitely learned over the last few uh, elections is that more and more partisanship just trumps everything. Uh, So I think that if you had a Republican candidate running in a district that they didn't live in, I don't think there's very many voters who would be particularly concerned about that or have that really have an impact on their vote. I think that they would just, if they were inclined to vote Republican in general, they'd just keep on voting Republican, whether uh, that person happened to be a, a true resident of the district or not. That's the kind of process story that I think voters just care less and less about. Uh, as it becomes more and more about supporting their team, be that the red team or the blue team. I think there's a a lot more room for people in those sorts of situations to not face a real liability for not living in the district. Tom, those uh, those listeners who listen to this program know all along that uh, I've stated publicly that I'm a registered affiliate. Uh, And uh, one of the things that sort of bothers me about the high number of people who are now registered as independents, is they have essentially taken themselves out of the opportunity to serve uh, because they, they are not a Democrat or Republican. And so if they come out and say, OK, for the election purposes, I'll be a Democrat or Republican, then the party may take a position where well, you weren't very loyal and uh, it puts them in a very bad light. Do you think that that situation will ever change where we will allow a third party candidate to run uh, more easily than the laws in North Carolina currently allow? Uh, I think it's just a, a situation where one party has to be willing to stand down in order for an independent candidate to be successful. Uh, so this is not a North Carolina specific example, but for instance, Lisa Murkowski Uh, was reelected to the Senate from Alaska as an independent last year. But the only reason she was able to win as an independent was because Democrats all voted for her. If there had been an actual Democratic candidate, uh, she wouldn't have had enough support to get reelected. But because the Democrats combined with the moderate Republicans and the independents to all support her over sort of the more extreme sort of Republican candidate, that's how it happened. So that same model could be replicated in some specific areas in North Carolina. But you think about somebody like Lisa Murkowski, she's somebody who's a very well-known name, lots of 
personal charisma and sort of longstanding credibility with people in the state. I think for unaffiliated candidates to win elections in North Carolina, you'd need a similar sort of situation like that, where even though you're unaffiliated, one party's voters or the other pretty much completely vote for you. Uh, and then you have enough support from just unaffiliated or from more moderate voters of the other party to get you over the top. And that's a hard coalition to assemble. Well, it's a, it's an interesting situation, especially in a purple state like North Carolina, where, as you said, we've got 51-49 sort of uh, uh, as far as the uh, the way that uh, statewide elections go. And yet we have uh, uh, the, the possibility of having 10 congressmen from one party. That's kind of an interesting situation. Well, our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. And uh, we've got uh, another segment to come up. And we want to talk about, uh, 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 again, uh, an extension of the ideas of what's going on in this upcoming 2020 for election, which is the time is ticking already. It seems strange that we are already talking about it, but we are. We'll be back right after these messages. One in three adults in America have pre-diabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mind. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse pre-diabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is our guest. A reminder that if you're listening to a station that carries the half-hour version of this program, there are two other segments that are available on carolinanewsmakers.com, and you can go online and hear those as they are segregated out. Or if you uh, uh, want to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do that as well. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Uh, Tom, when we were talking about uh, the presidential uh, race beginning to take shape already uh, on, for uh, uh, Republicans, we did not talk too much about the Democratic situation. So uh, I guess we need to follow up on that and give us your opinion of exactly where Democrats stand with regards to perhaps running President Biden for another term, or would they like to look elsewhere? What's the, what's the story there? There's a really interesting dichotomy in Biden's numbers with Democrats, which is that Democrats are overwhelmingly happy with the job he's doing, 
But at the same time, most Democrats actually would prefer a different candidate to be the nominee next year. Uh, these numbers I'm going to share from a poll we did in Dallas County, Texas, which is actually a, a really racially diverse county that's pretty reflective of the Democratic coalition. Uh, and we did a poll there recently. We found that 85 percent of Democrats approve of the job Biden's doing. Only four percent disapprove. So you'd think if only four percent are unhappy, he'd be you know, overwhelmingly uh, uh, the choice to get another term. But when we asked people who they wanted the candidate to be next year, 32% picked Biden, 17% uh, picked Pete Buttigieg, 12% picked Kamala Harris, uh, and then another 39% either picked another candidate or just said that they weren't sure. So an 85% approval rating among Democrats, but only 32% actually saying that they, they want him to be the candidate again. And I think that's probably mostly a reflection of his age, just a, a feeling that maybe somebody who's younger from the next generation should be the candidate. Uh, but I think what you're probably going to end up having happen here is that a serious Democratic challenger to Biden is not actually going to emerge. I would be surprised if anybody uh, who was a strong candidate on the Democratic side really ended up running against Biden. And certainly that's not something where Democratic voters would then be super unhappy because they do like Biden, uh, but they're definitely open to a newer voice if uh, if they were presented with one. Uh, that's that's interesting because the age issue is also, uh, you know, two years down the road, both uh, Biden and Trump will be two years older and both of them have an age issue. I'm surprised the age issue hasn't uh, do people just assume that uh, Trump is healthier than Biden? <laughs> I'm not sure, but it is sort of an interesting scene situation for both parties where uh, it's possible they might both be better off if they ran somebody different than they did the last time around. When we do Biden versus Trump polls and Biden versus DeSantis polls, DeSantis always does four or five points better uh, against Biden than Trump does. So I think Republicans for sure would be better off putting a newer voice forward. And then when you see how many Democrats would like to try something new, you wonder how somebody like Pete Buttigieg might do as a general election candidate or how Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan might do as a general election candidate compared to uh, Biden. But uh, at the end of the day, they do still both have the most support in their party. So we could very well end up with a, a rematch of last time around. When you isolate out the electoral college votes, uh, how does that turn out as far as your polling of Biden versus Trump? Because as we found out last time, uh, and as we found out in several campaigns, the popular vote does not always decide who's going to be elected president of the United States. So if you uh, uh, just uh, separate or segregate the uh, important states out, what uh, what results do you end up with? Well, I think you would basically end up with an election very similar to 2020, which, although, as you know, Biden won by a substantial amount in the popular vote, and he actually won it by a pretty substantial amount in the Electoral College, too. But he won it by a substantial amount in the Electoral College because he just about ran the table in super competitive states like Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Georgia. Uh, Pennsylvania, all those states were decided by less than a couple points and Biden came out ahead in all of them. It would not take too much of a shift in those states to end up moving it in Trump's uh, direction. So 
I think that, you know, as much baggage as there is ascribed to Trump, if it does end up being Biden versus Trump again, I think it's going to be a really close election again. We haven't uh, we haven't seen much evidence that people are really changing their minds in a substantive manner. Well, that leads me, I guess, to uh, a, a sort of a summary uh, to get you to summarize what happened and why in the uh, November election that just passed. Yeah, I mean, uh, it ended up being a much better election for Democrats than expected. Uh, and usually if you say an election went a lot better for one side than expected, you would say, oh, the polls must have had another bad year. It was actually a very good year for polling. The, the polls pretty much uh, turned out the way that uh, we all said they would. But what was surprising was that what usually happens in a midterm election is that the undecided voters in the polls at the end move strongly to the party that's out of power. So I remember the last conversation that we had before the election. I said, you know, Democrats are up by a little bit in Pennsylvania. They're up by a little bit in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, et cetera. But based on what's happened historically, these races where they're up by a little bit, they're probably going to end up losing because the undecideds break against the party in power. Uh, and what actually ended up happening last year is that that didn't happen. Uh, the undecideds didn't vote break, didn't uh, end up breaking at the end strongly in one direction or the other. Uh, and where the polls were leading up to the election was pretty much where the results ended up being, too. And the reason that happened is because Republicans, uh, A, in a lot of key Senate races in particular, nominated very poor candidates uh, and at the end of the day, a lot of people who didn't like Biden, but also didn't like the Republican candidate, ended up just voting for the Democrat, because uh, even if they weren't unhappy with Biden, they might have thought, for instance, in a place like Pennsylvania that, uh, you know, I might not like the president, but John Fetterman is better than Dr. Oz, that sort of thing. Uh, so that was a big part of what happened is that uh, people did not move to the Republicans at the end because they just could not stomach voting for these Republican candidates who they thought were uh, some combination of both too extreme and also too unqualified. Uh, then another big thing that just made a huge difference for Democrats last year was how much of a mobilizing factor the abortion issue ended up being. Uh, that, you know, a lot of the time, in a midterm election, the party that's in power doesn't have much that it can work with to sort of get their voters fired up or engaged because they've been making the decisions. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's no sort of boogeyman to use. And the Supreme Court gave Democrats uh, a boogeyman that made it so that the turnout differential that usually happens between Democrats and Republicans in a midterm election uh, was not nearly what it usually is. Democrats really were able to get their uh, people motivated to get out and vote. Uh, so those were a couple of the key reasons that things ended up, even though Republicans got control of the U.S. House, and certainly Republicans had a good election in North Carolina, uh, the national picture was a lot better for Democrats than you usually would expect in a midterm because of those issues. Tom, if you were to give advice, and I'm sure you do this on a regular basis to those who uh, hire you to do polling for them, but uh, uh, overall, what advice would you give first to the Democratic Party in North Carolina and then also to the Republican Party in North Carolina as far as how they would approach the upcoming 2024 election? The biggest issue Democrats have in North Carolina, and this is especially acute in the northeastern part of the state where Democrats lost a ton of legislative races last year and also came uncomfortably close in the congressional race, is 
Democrats are consistently not turning out at the same rate that Republicans are, and it's a particularly pronounced problem with getting uh, rural Black Democrats to come out and vote. I think Democrats really need to be making a 24-month uh, investment in engaging their base, particularly uh, in more rural parts of the state that have just been getting further and further away. I don't think it's a situation where it can be September of an election year and Democrats can go in and do what they need to get people engaged and out to vote on just a two-month timeline, something that Democrats need to be working on a lot harder over the course of the entire political cycle to sort of overcome some of these problems that they've been having. You know, there's still more Democrats in North Carolina than Republicans, but the reason Republicans win almost every election, a big piece of it, is that they do a better job of getting their people out to vote. So now let's turn around and say, what would you, what advice would you give to the Republicans to maintain that position? The biggest advice I'd have for the Republicans is just to run more reasonable candidates and to run more qualified candidates. Uh, you know, last year was mostly a very positive year for Republicans in North Carolina, but the one exception to that uh, came in the 13th Congressional District where uh, the Republican candidate Bo Hines lost to uh, the Democrat Wiley Nickel. And that's really the kind of place where Republicans should have been winning last year. But they nominated a super conservative guy with really close ties to Trump in his 20s. So we talk about Republicans needing to run people who are more qualified and less extreme. Uh, Bo Hines is sort of the poster child of being somebody who was not very qualified and who was very extreme. And I think if Republicans had run any sort of half decent candidate, they would have ended up winning that race. So I think that is the biggest message for Republicans, both in North Carolina and nationally, is to stop squandering their inherent advantages by running these candidates who, you know, your median voter just isn't going to find palatable enough to vote for. On the short term, what should we be watching for uh, in, the, say, the next six months as far as issues that might emerge uh, that might have an effect on the 2024 election? Well, one thing that was really interesting about last year's election is I think you already sort of identified that inflation was the biggest thing. Uh, but Democrats were very focused on abortion and Republicans were very focused on crime. Uh, and especially in the congressional seats in New York that Republicans were able to flip that gave them a, a majority in the U.S. House, crime was really a determinative issue. So what I'm going to be really interested to see is how those issues evolve over the course of this year. Uh, as we get further and further away from the Supreme Court decision on abortion, is that going to continue to be such a top of mind issue for a lot of middle of the road voters that ended up helping Democrats overperform next year? Or is that kind of going to fade? And then the same thing with the crime issue. I think there's a perception that crime in the country is a lot worse than it actually is. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see if voters continue to feel that way or not because that's an issue that really hurt Democrats in each of the last two election cycles. Voters just thought that Democrats were too permissive, uh, too, uh, too letting things get out of control. And I think that caused a lot of suburban voters to end up voting Republican. Tom, your timing has been impeccable. Uh, you give me just enough time to thank you very much for sharing these thoughts and opinions with us. And we look forward to having you back on again. And uh, we'll do just that. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises me faithfully that he will have another interesting guest again next week on the same group of stations. So uh, all across North Carolina, the next week, same time, same station. I hope that you and yours have a very, very good week. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.